This podcast features discussions about finances and money, which are general in nature. For personal advice specific to your circumstances, see a licensed financial planner or relevant qualified professional. Hi, folks. Welcome along to another episode of Looking Under the Hood, the Money Mechanics podcast where we are unpacking the money stuff. Today, we've got the amazing Rebecca Tetlow, lawyer, wills and estates specialist extraordinaire, coming back to have a chat to us about um, when estate planning goes wrong and probably a little bit around the the space where mediation, and, and we've talked to Rebecca a few times now, we thought today would be a really interesting topic of what happens when estate planning goes wrong when can you get copies of the will and and what is a mediation process look like or does it all end up in court so welcome back rebecca so good to have you here thanks scott thanks for having me join you and talk about this area of course my preference is to try and put good planning in place ahead of time but sometimes that's not always possible and then we're left trying to clean up the mess after someone has passed away yeah, look, and I know we've had a few sort of off, off, uh, almost off camera, but we're on uh, on speaker, off off speaker discussions around what what can go wrong, and I think that's what makes your uh, advice so solid in that you see what happens when things goes ro- go wrong. So when you're actually pulling together the the estate plan and the the framework for people with their estate planning process, you're aware of some of the things that could trip them up along the way. One of the first things I was going to talk to you about, and and something we talked about before, is can can anyone get a copy of a will? So, I mean, look, I've had you on the podcast three times now, so we've got a pretty intimate relationship, I feel. So if, if you die, am I able to roll in and say, hey, Rebecca didn't put me in, in, in her will. I, I think I deserve uh, uh, a bit of an in, in here. Or does there have to be more of a, a connection than that? Well, Scott, sadly, we are not related and I've not named you in any of my previous wills. So you're out of oh. luck, pal. Um, so... Look, the first thing to say is that while someone's alive, then they're entitled to keep their will private and can't be forced to give a copy of their will to anyone while they're alive. After they've passed away, then there are rules in each state about who is entitled to see a copy of a will. And in New South Wales and ACT, there's a list of who is eligible And in a nutshell, if you are someone who would be entitled to their estate on intestacy, so if they died without a will, or if you are someone that's named in the will or any previous wills or acted as a power of attorney for the person, then you're entitled to ask for a copy of the will. And the the law in the ACT in New South Wales even goes so far as to say, if someone holds a copy of the will or previous wills, that they must provide a copy on request. So there's no requirement that an executor has to provide a copy um, unless it's requested. So there's no reading of the will like we sometimes see on American TV shows. But if asked, then the executor needs to give a copy of the will to an eligible person. Yeah, and again, I, I think I've done most of my my young adult learning around uh, adulting from US based TV shows. So that whole like people coming into a fancy uh, lawyer's uh, office, and I, I know your office is a pretty fancy, but 
doing the reading of the will. I mean, is it like that in real life? Like, do people actually have a ceremony to write, we're going to read the will of um, of this person? Or is it a little less uh, formal than that? Look, it's less formal and, and less dramatic. Um, so so uh, it's certainly not usual to have a formal reading of the will. Um, and in most cases, my initial meeting would be with an executor to talk about um, what the will means and what's involved in administering the estate if I'm acting for the executor. Um, sometimes for a family member that wants to know, well, what are they entitled to? It can be a bit more of a delicate dance to find out that information. So as much as they might have the right to request a copy of the will, sometimes there's some sensitivities about how and when they might ask the executor for a copy of the will. And sometimes there's sensitivity about asking about, well, what are the assets of the estate? Sometimes families mm. have a pretty good clue about, you know, well, mum or dad, they owned this piece of property or I knew that they had you know, last time we chatted a couple of years ago, they had bank accounts of about this much. But sometimes if that information's not known, then we might need to do some um, investigations to work out what are the assets owned. Some of that information can be publicly available, like doing title searches for properties or company searches with ASIC. But otherwise, uh, sometimes to find out that information, if I'm acting for someone other than the executor, it can mean a direct inquiry with the executor to find out what's in the estate. Yeah, and, and I'd imagine that would be uh, quite uh, a gruelling administration process as well. Uh, if people have been good with record keeping, that, that could probably be a bit easier to find. But uh, if, if people are, again, if you're acting on the other side where the asset information isn't forthcoming, it might be a little bit harder to uh, navigate and say, oh, yes, actually, there was this, this bucket of shares or there was a, a, a trust that had some investments attached to it. I guess keeping in mind that the trusts and things might actually sit outside of that will structure at the end of the day. And so I guess if you, you go through the process, you know, right, we, we've got the the will, you, if, if you're entitled to a copy of it, um, if you're then going through that process. And so where does it become a dispute? So you were saying before, if say a family member comes in, someone who has a, a direct line, unfortunately, again, hopefully you're not going to die yet, Rebecca, but uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to sit there and say, hey, um, Rebecca was on my podcast, come on. Um, but if there is that direct connection, then what? how can it be managed from that point? So there's obviously then a dispute that is raised. So it could be, okay, I, I feel like I was entitled to something but have been left out of the will. As you say, there's different rules based on the state or territory that you're in as to, to what that provision might be. But what's the process or what's the um, framework that's then used on that dispute process? Yeah, I guess the first thing that I would be working out with clients is what's the nature of the dispute? And estate disputes covers a variety of different things. The most common is a family provision claim. And that's where you've mentioned, you know, Scott, you're so disappointed that you weren't included in my will, or that I didn't leave you what you think is enough. Uh, and you're looking for a greater share of the estate. And so um, family provision claims are the majority of estate disputes. And uh, I guess at the heart of family provision is, did the deceased have an obligation to provide for the applicant? And if so, how much? And, and it really comes down to that, that needs assessment, um, taking into account all the circumstances of the deceased, the applicant's relationship with the deceased, the size of the estate. And at the end of the day, family provision claims are about how is the estate divided? 
should the, the terms of the will or the division on intestacy, should that be amended to give a greater share of the estate to the applicant? But that's not the, the only type of estate dispute. I'm seeing more and more disputes about the validity of wills. And so that's where there might be concerns that the person lacked capacity at the time they made the will. So either because, you know, they might have been suffering dementia or suffering from a mental illness, which meant that they really weren't able to understand the nature and effect of the will or to be able to weigh up who they should be providing for in the will. And that's quite a different um, dispute in terms of the outcomes. Um, so if a will is invalid because someone lacked capacity, then the will is overturn, overturned and it goes back to a previous will or, or to intestacy if there is no will. Um, and it, that's really sort of comes down to a, a battle of wills, which will prevails. Um, and the, the timing for having that dispute the best time for that is before a grant of probate issues. And so if someone has concerns about, you know, that the willmaker didn't have capacity or that they might have been under undue influence to make a will in a particular way um, or that there were suspicious circumstances where the major beneficiary was involved in having the will prepared, in that circumstance, the person with concerns about that needs to act pretty quickly. The other types of disputes might be things like disputes about how a superannuation death benefit is divided. And so if the deceased was a member of an industry fund like Australian Super, and if they did not leave a binding nomination, then the trustee of Australian Super will be making a decision about who amongst that person's spouse, children or estate should receive the benefit. And in that case, it's really about presenting your case to the superannuation trustee rather than a court per se. So it, it depends on what's the, the chief concern of the person that I'm advising? What are they most worried about? What's the outcome that they're trying to achieve? And then working out, okay, when and how do we have this dispute? Is it a dispute with the super trustees or is it court proceedings? And if so, how quickly do we need to act? Yeah, and I'm because I've even recently just had an issue with a client, the uh, industry super fund uh, death benefit payment. There was a non-binding nomination in place, and I guess that's probably the the key word there, isn't it? And it was all to go to a to a spouse, but because they went through their due process, the the spouse was expecting oh the money's going to be paid within a, a shorter time frame, but. The, the process of the super fund was that they then had the children sign off that they were actually okay for the money to be paid to, to, to their mother, so to speak. And so you're going, wow. And, and again, it's like I said, due process, isn't it, from a legal perspective to make sure that they're abiding by their trustee rules at the end of the day. Yeah, that can come as a real surprise for, you know, families that, you know, might be a sort of cohesive family where the, the person expected the whole benefit to go to their spouse and all of a sudden children are getting involved having to say yes or no whether they want to claim. Um, but the, the division of super proceeds can become a real battleground if, if there is disharmony, if there's children from a previous relationship, for example. Uh, then it can become a dispute that can stretch on for a really long time <laughs> because unlike court proceedings uh, where usually the judges keep things moving on a pretty tight timetable with superannuation disputes, uh, once the trustee is considering the information before it, they can take 
sometimes months to review it. And then once they make a decision, there are, there are more timeframes in which, you know, each party has 30 days to then contest that decision. Yeah, wow, wow. And um, I guess if it, I don't know, go down the path and, and the dispute happens and contesting decisions, so does it always end up in court or is there another way around that? So, I mean, obviously you're a lawyer. Lawyers love going to court, don't you, because you get to wear the, the fancy wigs and get dressed up in the gowns and stuff. But I'm guessing that's that's probably not where you go as the, the first port of call. Yeah, look, um, it, it's certainly not the case that all matters end in court and even those that start as court proceedings usually um, are resolved before it gets to a court hearing. So I, I guess the first stage of a dispute is usually establishing what information is available and what's the type of dispute. Often there is communications between lawyers for the applicant and lawyers for the executor um, before court proceedings are commenced. Usually there's some preliminary communications, at least just trying to establish what's in the estate, asking for, for information that's going to be key to resolving the dispute. And it is also possible to resolve disputes without starting court proceedings. So, for example, if an applicant is an eligible person who could make a family provision claim and if they're able to show um, through their lawyer's letters that they have genuine need and, and provide certain information about their financial situation, then it could be possible for everyone to agree to amend the terms of the will and it's usually done by something called a deed of family arrangement. It is possible for everyone to agree, look, notwithstanding that the will says this, we're all agreeing that the estate is going to be divided like that. And what's really key is that if you go, if an executor is going to deviate from the terms of the will and distribute it in another way, they can only do so if they've got the consent of all the beneficiaries and all of the beneficiaries are able to give consent so that they're all over 18 and not under some sort of disability that means they can't give appropriate consent. Um, so there are times when it is more cost effective and quicker to resolve things by way of a deed of family arrangement. Um, sometimes there might be reasons why it is necessary to, to have court proceedings, even if everyone's in agreement. Um, that might relate to getting stamp duty concessions or because there's a beneficiary who can't agree to the deed of family arrangement. Or it might be that it's in the interests of the parties to go through the formal process of starting proceedings with the court. And I guess the benefit of having court proceedings is that the parties can have some certainty about um, things moving on a time frame um, and also, yeah. uh, you know, all of the rules of evidence about how information is, is provided and, and disclosure is provided. If we're not going to court, if we can't do that, and then I guess that whole mediation uh, process then then comes in, and I guess we, we talk about mediation in, in legal terms, uh, often it could be family law, it could be other things. And, and so I'm imagining that's getting people to the table to, to discuss and to try and work through the, the differences. So how does that work? Like who becomes a mediator? What What is that process all about? Yeah, look, mediation um, is really just a structured way for the parties to negotiate and it can happen either before court proceedings so it is possible to have a mediation even without court proceedings that then ends up in a deed of family arrangement 
or um, if the parties commence court proceedings, then pretty early in the piece, the court is going to order that the parties attend a mediation. So at least in, in family provision matters, in almost you know, look, the vast majority of cases, unless there's a very good reason not to, the court is going to say, I'm not going to give you a date for hearing until you've tried to mediate this. And in that case, there's an independent mediator appointed. Um, and a mediator's job is to encourage the parties to negotiate. So in the estate space, it's often a retired, you know, a, a a barrister who's who's skilled and experienced in estate disputes or even sometimes a retired judge might be the mediator. But when they're acting in the role of a mediator, they're not there to be the judge. They're not going to give a ruling in favour of one person or another. Uh, Their job is really to encourage the parties to reach an agreement. And, you know, in the estate space, a mediation usually happens um, between, you know, the, the par- each party would be there with their lawyers, sometimes with barristers as well, depending on the type of dispute that it is. And they can have support people there as well. Sometimes I have clients sort of say to me, oh, do you think the mediator's going to, um, you know, will they, will they like this piece of evidence or is the mediator going to decide that? And I have to keep going back, no, no, the mediator's job is to encourage us to settle and to reach a compromise, their job is not to give us a decision. Um, I mean, look, I imagine it's not um, like, like anything, like this this estates place. Uh, I think you've said it earlier and probably on our previous podcast, like it, it's a fascinating area, um, but probably a very loaded area for people as well because it's got the money, it's got the emotion, um, and then it's probably got all the other dynamic that exists within a family unit as well that then comes to the, the forefront when you're going through that process. So... Yeah, so it's often dealing with families that, um, as you say, that they've got loads of history and baggage uh, with each other. Um, they're dealing with money and emotions, but also they're, they're trying to deal with that in the context of grief um, and in the context of trying to work out what does life look like for me now that this person has passed away. And so it, it is an area where, um, you know, it, it's important to tread carefully but there's also amazing opportunity in mediations to help the parties reach a resolution um, that allows them then to move on with their lives with confidence and and with certainty so I guess one of the biggest reasons why mediation is such a good opportunity is that it gives the parties the um, ability to problem solve their dispute and to reach an agreement themselves So rather than going through a court process where at the end of the day a judge is going to make a decision based on old and sometimes complex legal reasoning and legal principles, instead this allows the parties to be the architects of their own solutions. Um, Sometimes in a mediation we can can look at... um, resolving issues that might not be central to the legal dispute. And so, for example, when involved in a dispute about the validity of a will, the legal tests about whether someone has capacity or about whether someone was under undue influence, they can sometimes be really strict and narrow legal tests, whereas um, at a mediation it's possible for the parties as part of coming to a deal to resolve 
other things. So, you know, whether that's the division of, mm. of personal items. So, you know, look, yes, part of it's about the money, but part of it is also that I want um, these particular artworks or this piece of jewellery. Uh, I've been involved in a mediation which was about the validity of the will and whether someone had capacity. And, you know, for one party, it was just about he was trying to get maximum amount of money and, and was angling for the will that was going to give him a, a greater share of the estate. But for the other party, one of the key issues for her was who was going to administer the estate. And she really wanted to avoid a situation where the other party was the executor of the will. She had concerns about his ability to properly administer the estate. And part of the resolution that we came to was about agreeing that someone independent would be appointed as the administrator of the estate. And that was one of the ways to kind of avoid going to court and to get a resolution. Yeah, wow. And have you ever had, and this is a bit of a random side question, Rebecca, but have you ever had a situation where potential, I know, family grievances or, I know, sibling rivalry or those elements have, have come up and that's 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 caused an initial issue, but then going through the mediation process, it's actually helped to heal and maybe mend some of the, the relationship discourse or does it generally result in people sign off, they mediate, and then they never talk to each other again. I mean, I, I suppose you don't probably check in with them later to say, hey, how's your family relationship going? But, yeah, have there any been, ever been any situations that have sort of brought people closer together, I guess, by going through that mediation process? Yeah, look, well, look, firstly, I, I do like to check in with clients about how they're feeling after the mediation, <laughs> um, particularly because, you know, look, it's, it's a time of big emotions that... Um, you know, sometimes it is quite common for clients after a mediation to then second guess all of their decisions that they they made on the day of mediation. But um, look, occasionally a mediation can be really restorative to family relationships. And it's something that I try and unpack with clients as we prepare for mediation is what, what is it that you most want to get out of this? And for some clients, they might say, I just need a clean break from this person. I, I, I don't want to have anything, any further involvement with them. And then we look at resolutions, which means that they, they don't have any ongoing financial relationship. In other families, you know, that clients articulate, it's really important to me that we still have family Christmas together. This person is my brother or my sister or my stepmother or, or what have you. And it's important to me that we can still be civil to each other after this process. Um, I was involved in, in a mediation where a, a son had been, for the most part, left out of a will he had previously been given advances by his father that had been then lost through um, failed businesses and, and failed marriage. And so he'd been left with very little in the will and he brought a family provision claim. And at, at one point in the mediation, we said to his sister, look, just go outside and have a chat to him. Find out what it is that he wants. And when they were able to bond over morning tea um, and having a, a coffee outside, um, it came out that for him it wasn't necessarily just about a dollar figure that he wanted to walk away with. What was important to him was to receive a parcel of land that was part of the family farm and the family legacy. And so from the sister's point of view, she was able to resolve the dispute for, for a smaller financial amount 
in giving him a piece of, of the property and he was able to hang on to um, property that was part of his family legacy. I mean, you talked about cost as well, and, and obviously, again, the, the important work that you do, if lawyers are involved, it does come at a, at a cost. Is it is it true that that's just covered by the estate? Because um, often you sort of hear, oh, yes, I'll, I'll go and have a, have a crack at the estate and the estate will have to pay for it. Is, it, is that, I don't know, is that a truth or is it uh, uh, one of those uh, fancy made-up things? Well, it's an urban myth that is certainly pretty popular and I hear it often when, when people say to me, oh, well, it will come out of the estate, won't it? Look, I, I guess the short answer is perhaps but not necessarily. And so at the end of the day, and, and to kind of put this all in very simple and generalised terms, if a party is successful um, in court proceedings. So if a family provision claimant is successful in getting an order for a bigger share of the estate, then it's likely that the court will say their costs should be paid from the estate, you know, that if they're successful, that their costs should be paid. If the matter settles before going to a court hearing, then it's up to the parties to agree to what happens to the costs. And usually if there's agreement that the applicant will receive something, then there's also usually agreement that there'll be some money paid for their costs. I, I guess the reasoning being that if they had to bring these proceedings to get the outcome that they get, then their legal costs of doing so should be covered. But it's certainly not an automatic thing. And sometimes I talk to people who are interested in making a claim against the estate and think that their legal costs will be covered automatically. Um, and covered right from the get-go and that they'll have no out-of-pockets. It's a bit more complicated than that and, and by no means a, a certain a certainty. Myth busted. But any final words to, to wrap up with today? I guess it, it sounds like, as always, if you do the right planning, if you get the right conversations going with, with the important family members or, or relationship members in your life, that's the way to, to probably prevent going down the, the path of a dispute. But also, if, if a dispute does occur, there's, there's avenues that you can explore to try and, again, um, either reconcile or, or come to a, a fair and reasonable outcome for people. But, I mean, yeah, any other comments you'd like to make? Uh, look, I'd, I'd encourage any listeners that if, if they have concerns about uh, an estate and are thinking about um, whether they challenge that estate or uh, my advice would be to, to go and get specialist legal advice early in the piece so that you don't miss any important timeframes. And then as part of that legal advice, what's really critical is to think about what's the outcome that I'm looking for? Because that might really frame and assist, you know, what type of claim is brought and then how do we try to resolve it? Yeah, no, fa fantastic insight and advice. And look, as always, I'll put all your contact details in the in the show notes. And again, appreciate your time. And uh, I feel like we've made it a bit light and fun this uh, this estate uh, dispute uh, process, but probably, uh, as I say, busted a few myths and uh, confirmed that it isn't as quite as Hollywood as uh, as it's possibly made out on uh, on the TV. But uh, thank you again for your time. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode today. Again, uh, check out Rebecca's details and also check out 
the past episodes that Rebecca's been on, episode six in in season one, where we've uh, unpacked the probably more procedural and and mechanics of a of an estate plan and process to pull things together. We hope you've enjoyed it, and if you have, please jump on and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. See you next time. Bye.